Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Theology and Insanity, your weekly Catholic podcast on all things theology, culture, politics, discipleship, and, and insanity that we're seeing now in the world. I'm Dave Van Vickle, and I'm joined by my co-host here, Dr. Michael Cirilla. Mike, how you doing this morning? I'm doing great, Dave. Happy feast day. The day we're recording this is the uh, feast of the Annunciation. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love the Annunciation, and the uh, the Church uses the Annunciation as like you know the pedagogy for catechesis and for evangelization. Right, that Mary Mary hears the Word of God, assents to that Word, God becomes present inside of her, and then she communicates God to the world, and that's what we're all supposed to do, right? I mean, so that's right. Yeah, that's what we should all be doing every day. Hey, Mike, let me ask you a question. So. So uh, my, one, my favorite book, one of the books I read every year, there's like three books that I read every single year in January, and one of them is The Intellectual Life by Serti Lange, okay? Oh, and so I Yeah, and I love asking scholars, like, if they have, like, do, they, do you have a process, like, when you sit down to do your work, and I'm not talking about, like, preparing for class, but, like, new scholarship, things you're writing, things like that. Do you have a process? I mean, do you do you drink coffee? Do you do it at a certain time of day? Do you have an office at your house that you do it? Like, what's your process for work? Yeah, yeah. Well, first, and and beginning, middle, and end is prayer. So you have prayer going constantly, and then it depends on the on the uh, project. Is it you know if it's a book, uh, if it's a an article, if it's a book review, it's it, you know the mileage varies in each case. But usually, uh, for me, it's when I can catch. Uh, depending on my teaching schedule, right? Uh, enough time of quiet uh, uh, because it's hard for me to to start and stop. And Sir Talange is really good with this. He has intense degree of structure, but if you have a bunch of kids, you can't have that kind of structure. So uh, it's all right. Um, uh, plenty of people do it. It's, Scott Hahn writes a lot. They've got a lot of kids, you know. So uh, so yeah. Uh, for me these days, the afternoons is the time, you know. But when my when I'm teaching in the afternoons in different semesters, and it's mornings. Used to be in, in the beginning of our marriage, um, uh, we'd put the kids down and then I'd work at night till late in the night. But now that I'm older, <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't stay up as as well. So mornings are actually best for me. But I'm teaching in the mornings, so so afternoons and yeah, coffee or or whatever. But uh, but yeah, and then you know, uh, it's it's a lonely. It's been kind of lonely. You know, it's you're working alone. And when you're a grad student or even an upperclassman undergrad student, you bring your um, work to your colleagues in class, to your professor and your fellow students, right? You say, I'm working on this, or you share what you did, and you get feedback, and it's pretty pretty steady feedback along the way. But when you're doing scholarship on your own as a professor, it's a little more isolating. So what you do is you, most of us have done this, we have uh, networks of friends, and we share our ideas and drafts with each other and tear into it. But it's a lot slower, and it's usually long distance, you know. Um, though I'll tell you what, we've had an ongoing seminar just for publishing faculty here at, at, in the theology department at Franciscan, and it's been fantastic. And we get to kind of shop out our ideas and yeah, that sounds awesome. critical feedback. Yeah, so it's been good. Because it's hard to do it alone, for me at least. I don't like doing it alone. Yeah, well, Cersei Lan, she definitely says, no, you don't do it in a vacuum. You can't do that alone, you know, and you have to dialogue with the other people and everything like that. So Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And then what about like, so, you're, I mean, you're regularly reading. Like, how many, I mean, how many hours a week do you think here? Re- reading? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, reading anything at all? Well... <laughs> Yeah, reading no, constantly, reading, constantly. reading for reading for work, I guess, is what I'd say. Uh, oh yeah, well, uh, at least uh, 
I'd say a third of the third of the time. So if I'm working fifty hours a week, a third a third of that, but but it gets close to half sometimes. Especially semesters like the one I'm in right now, where I'm I'm running a graduate seminar in the sacraments, and we're reading thousands of pages of great works and some really crummy works on the sacraments. You know, fathers and doctors, and then some modern thinkers, and then some yeah. really bad uh, thinkers on the sacraments. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but last night, last night, I just read the second to last chapter of Lord of the Rings uh, to my <laughs> two to my two youngest girls. So okay. I, I, I have right, a tradition of reading that. I read Lord of the Rings, read it to my two oldest boys when they were that age, uh, and then my two older girls when they were that age, now my two younger girls, and then I have two little boys coming up. So I'll read that to them in a few years from now, but it's such a... Well, I don't know. Everybody's kind of feels different about it, I guess, but I, oh, I, I love it. It's a wonderful... Yeah. I do too. It's such a wonderful story. We just read yeah. the, sc- the Scouring of the Shire. and mm, Yeah. Yeah. So oh, yeah. I love it. I love it so much, and it's, uh, it's like... Uh, it's kind of the age right now of Tolkien. Like everybody, everybody's kind yeah. of come, come around to it. So yeah, yeah that's, that's cool. That's cool. Well, speaking of some bad theology, um, we, we see in the news recently, our, for our topic today, we saw in the news recently, actually really, I, I liked the document. I don't know how you felt about it, but a document came out from the CDF uh, t- talking about the blessing of homosexual unions, marriages, homosexual, gay marriage is what they're talking about, and that that was illicit. You cannot do that. Um, because, and they basically said, you know, God cannot bless sin. I, I was very happy with the document, but it came about because the German bishops, I believe, submitted um, some requests or something like that. I mean, give, give us some context here. Right. So there's a, oh my goodness, there's so much to talk about here. Um, the document is very good. It's a, it's a response to a dubium. We can talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Uh, but to contextualize it, what's going on here is Pope Francis has called for a more synodal church. And, a, and, a, and, and the idea there, at least what that projected to people like me at my area is a, a theology of the church, which is ecclesiology, right, is something potentially hopeful, okay? When I first heard this, I thought, oh, mm-hmm. this is good, because it's the idea of subsidiarity. Namely, when you have an issue, catechetical, evangel- evangelistic, pastoral, or doctrinal, uh, moral, that you need to deal with in your diocese or in your region, okay, then you can handle that with a local synod of bishops. Uh, it doesn't. The synod doesn't have to match the national bishops' conference. It can be, you know, in the United States before we had bishops' conferences, uh, we had synods in Baltimore, uh, out of which came the Baltimore Catechism. In the ancient church, in the ancient church, there were a number of synods that were extremely important in determining the canon of scripture. The synods at the at, at the town of Hippo in North Africa. Um, there were synods at Toledo, where the filioque was inserted into the creed, uh, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Um, synods are very important, and very often they handle things at that level, and that's it. Like, there was a heretic, Paul of Samosata, who was condemned at a synod in Asia Minor. He, he denied the distinction of three uh, uh, persons in the Trinity, and, and he, was, uh, he was condemned at that synod, and it really didn't have to go all the way to Rome. Well, then, skipping forward to 1215, uh, the Fourth Council of Lateran, Lateran IV, really centralized this process so that it was much harder to get uh, things done on the local level. Things pretty much all had to be funneled into Rome. Okay. Um, and maybe for some good reasons, okay, without having to go into all the history there. Uh, but things were much more centralized in Rome. Now, that doesn't mean the papacy wasn't prime, you know, the Pope had primacy from the very beginning. 
Right. Okay. Right. Yeah, you get from the beginning. You could always appeal all the way up to Rome, and people did that from the very beginning. It's just that if you can handle it locally, that's often a good idea. And and uh, but Lateran four, like I said, in twelve fifteen A.D., started to centralize that process and make it much more difficult for local bishops to excommunicate other bishops okay. who were her- heretical. Okay. Okay. They wanted this to be reserved to Rome. And again, maybe for some good reasons. So anyway, when Francis says, let's open up the church to a more synodal model, he's not, I, I don't think we should take that as a rejection of the primacy of the, of the papacy, okay? But rather, let things be handled locally. I thought, oh, this is great. Finally, we can get some, some traction here. And, the, and the, the, let's say that the aberrant theologians in the United States, like uh, Father uh, Roger Hayter, Sister Elizabeth Johnson can can be disciplined more strongly than just a slap on the wrist, or you can't teach at the school anymore. Um, or, you know, or or aberrant uh, bishops could be dealt with um, as well on the synodal level. But apparently, that's not how it's shaking out. Sadly, <laughs> uh, the the way it's shaking out is we had you know we had a synod, the Pan Amazonian Synod, a few years ago in South America, which wasn't really great. It kind of no was a little weak. I thought. Um, no, although well, I, I guess. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I guess like you know, like what I want to just interject is like it seems like you just gave me really good perspective, like historical perspective on the positive side of synods because I did not have that perspective before, and I look at any grouping of bishops almost negatively because I have very little good things. I have very few good things to say about the USCCB and like things like that. So I don't really. I'm to me, like a bishop is a bishop, right? Where the church, where the where the uh, bishop is, the church also should be, right? Yeah, and 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 I like that. And when they get together, I I haven't seen like a grow in strength at all when they get together. But I see what you're saying now. That would be different. Like uh, uh, there could be some positive stuff to this, but we're not seeing it now. (laughs) This is a really good. Thank you for saying that. That's a really good point, and and it has to. We have to clarify something. So the national bishops' conferences, United States or Germany or Italy, you know, wherever, these are na- Canada, national bishops' conferences, they're a new phenomenon in the church. They're not original. So that's something that can we can change or get rid of in the future if we like. It's something that came about with Vatican II, um, and, you know, it's, it's all right. It's not, it's not wrong. It's just uh, not something that's revealed by God. It's just a structure. Right, yes, it's amoral um, in a sense, right? It's like, yeah, in a sense. It it's, could be useful or it could be harmful. And, and I too, Dave, have been disaffected by the USCCB's, uh, you know, uh, many of their documents over the years have been less than helpful. Uh, in 1973, I think, 73, maybe uh, it was in the 70s at least, they had a document entitled Environment and Art in Catholic Worship. And that document was really a manifesto for the recovations that we've, we've seen happen right. in the church. Right. So, you know, it hasn't been great, actually. But that's not the same thing as a synod. That's not the same thing as a synod. Now, the other thing that complicates it, one more thing, another distinction that we have to make to clarify things, because often the same words are used with slightly different meanings. Um, at Vatican II, they called for a, kind of a renewal of... S- synods. but um, And so since then, under Paul VI in the late 60s and beyond, we've had these kind of semi-annual synods in Rome. And they're not universal councils of the church because not every bishop in the world is invited. 
when you have when you have a council like Vatican II or Trent, every bishop of the world is invited. They don't always usually all attend. They can't, but but at least they're all invited to attend. With these synods that happened at Vatican II and beyond, um, like the synod on the family we just had, or okay. the synod on evangelization, or under Benedict we had a synod on the Word of God. Uh, a synod on the family. We had a synod that uh, was uh, in 1985, I think, on uh, that that uh, out of which came the idea for the new catechism, which now is right, old right, for, old right. for us, right? right. So, um, but the, the, those are weird. They're not. They're a different synodal model than the early church, because in the early church, synods were in regions, like the synod of Baltimore. That's not the early church, but that's uh, in the United States. The synods of Baltimore in the 19th century were regional. You'd have bishops in the eastern part of the United States coming together in Baltimore. In the early church, you had synods of Antioch in Asia Minor, and bishops from all over that area would come together, or Hippo in North Africa. Bishops from all over that area would get together. Uh, here, it, what we have now is several every few years, we have a synod in Rome, and the Pope, I th- I'm not quite sure how the process works, because it's always changing, it's a moving target, but uh, the Pope or some group uh, invite specific bishops to attend those synods, you know, but it's not every bishop. Um, and uh, again, so 2015, that synod on the family was one example. I think the Pan-Amazonian synod was another example. But So when Francis said, let's go back to a synodal model, that made a lot of us in ecclesiology, theology of the church, think, oh, maybe we're going to get back to local synods, regional synods that are different than the uh, bishops' conferences, uh, and the hope would be it wouldn't be less bureaucratic. Bishops' conferences often meet in hotels. It's not as it's not as kind of liturgical. It's not as w- wouldn't it be great if they could meet in a church like uh, Vatican II or Trent or the local synods of of Hippo or Antioch in the early church? They met in churches, you know, and it was prayerful and even at times monastic, um, right? At, at least in its milieu. But yeah, no, that's not that's not what's happening. <laughs> so 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 let me so for people who are wondering still, kind of like, well, what what exactly are they? What's the relationship to like magisterial teaching and a synod? It, it it's it's magisterial teaching, um, insofar as the bishops present are making judgments in faith and morals, or even discipline and governance with respect to the revealed Word of God as interpreted by the church prior to that synod, right? So, for example, if you had a synod in the early church that was held after Nicaea in 325, uh, that synod would be orthodox, and they would appeal to the New Te- Old Testament, New Testament, uh, writings of their predecessors, and, and they'd appeal to Nicaea, which is a universal council, or prior papal statements, okay? So it has a binding authority, it's just not universally binding. So a local synod is uh, initially an, a magisterial act that's binding in that region, okay? But very often there's been great universal fruits of synods. So, for example, in Toledo you had, uh, like I said earlier, the filioque developed uh, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son in the creed. And eventually Leo the Great, uh, or uh, one of the Leos, uh, took that up and universalized it. So things that can start in a local synod can eventually be taught uh, uh, in the whole church, insofar as what happens at a local synod is genuine, authentic preservation and explanation of what's been revealed by God in His Word. Okay, okay. Well, that makes sense so, to me. Yeah. So it does have a, it has magisterial authority, but you wouldn't, let's say if there's a local synod that was not universalized by a pope, then you couldn't point to that and say it's binding to y'all in a different continent. You know? Right. 
Well, it makes when you when you use the example of like a heretic, it makes sense. Local synods make perfect sense, right? Like you know, there's somebody teaching in that area heresy. You know, these bishops get together. I think it's like the problem with synods now is. Like, you know, before you're getting four or five bishops together to agree and they control the flow of information. But now you've got their secretaries tweeting out what people are saying in the middle of the synod and it becomes like an alternative magisterium. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah. Not only that, but sometimes you have participants in certain synods recently. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, right. Actu- actually, actually contemplating heretical teachings. Right. Right. Like, so, yeah. That, I mean, <laughs> I mean that was madness. The, the Amazonian synod was madness because... You were getting real-time discussion that was not being settled before it was being revealed to the public. It was, it right. was rough. I, a colleague of ours in the theology department, Dr. Katarina Westerhorstmann, she teaches theology in Gaming for us uh, in Austria. She was a perita, that's the feminine of peritus. She was an expert for one of the bishops in the German synod. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. So the, this German synod, people have heard about, right? You've heard about that. It's, it's right. been going it's, on. It's a nightmare, right? Yeah, it's a nightmare. And uh, so she she was participating in in that synod um, a couple years ago, uh, or last year. The timeline here is a little little vague in my mind. I don't remember exactly, but uh, she and her bishop uh, joined a small coalition of bishops introducing a motion to the synod, and the motion was, let's make a commitment like the profession of faith and the oath of fidelity, that whatever we teach is going to be in line uh, with the creed and with church teaching. And it was, um, the majority voted against it. Wow. I mean, that's the a nightmare. majority of the participants of the German Bishop Synod, and we're talking about bishops, voted against the proposal to commit to whatever they teach will be in line with church teaching on church teaching. discipline governance, yes. Right. I, <laughs> so I, that I, was I, really a, a, a crushing, really sad. Um, this is why, by the way, we need desperately good theologians and we need good doctoral programs in theology because it's theologians who are consulting with bishops, how, uh, uh, enabling them to make their proposals here, right? And right now we have a quorum of uh, theologian experts who are kind of going in the wrong direction, frankly. Yeah, but that's problematic that a bishop can be swayed by a dissident theologian. Come on, I mean that's well, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It, you know, mo- most bishops these days, uh, at least in many countries, our own included, uh, are uh, uh, chosen because of their diplomatic skills. Uh, yeah, I know. So they're diplomats that come from the diplomatic corps. Many of them have degrees in canon law, which is fine. Uh, very few of them have degrees in theology, or fewer than historically. By the way, though, it's almost out of necessity. The dioceses are huge. These are right. huge animals to to try to. I mean, this is it's like running a Fortune five hundred company. You know, no, it's no, like, that's right, that's right. Uh, and and uh, in fact, Scott Hahn the other day told me that um, he thinks, and we've talked about this several times over the years, that it might be better if dioceses were smaller, more manageable. Yeah, so the split could it. be yeah, yeah right, more right. in touch with the people like like they were historically. But in any event, um, because they don't have the same theological expertise as, as many of them did in the past, uh, they have to rely on, on theology ex, ex, experts, quote unquote, you know. Um, all right. All right. So let's get, I mean, because let's get back to the, yeah, the main yeah. question. So, so, the, so the German bishops synod, something comes out where they decide they're going to bless same-sex unions, right? Yeah. Same-sex civil unions, basically. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. 
So what do you do? This is, this is a great example of a, of, a, of a certain kind of painful crisis that occurs on occasion <laughs> in, right. in the church. Uh, there is at least a remote template for how to deal with this in Galatians chapter 2, uh, when Peter does something a little strange uh, with the Antioch Christians, when Jewish Christians come up and they don't want Peter to have table fellowship with them because they're not circumcised. And a lot of Jewish Christians felt, look, you, you got to be circumcised if, you, if you're going to be baptized because the promise of the Messiah is a promise to the Jews. So you have to be in the, Jew, in the Old Covenant first by circumcision in order to inherit the promises of the New Covenant. Now that's a heresy. And Peter himself condemned it. And yet when the Jewish Christians came up who were holding that error, Peter aligned himself with them and Paul confronted him and said, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. And then Peter, Peter silently and humbly and laudably uh, uh, recognized that Paul was right. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, this and, isn't when they go to James. This is—is is this when they go to James to like settle the argument, kind of? Or, well, no? that—that's recounted back in Acts, uh, okay, in Acts okay, fifteen. Okay. But but uh, uh, but but here in Galatians two, Paul is just talking about the incident where they're both in okay. Antioch, Peter and Paul, yeah. Yeah. and then the Jewish Christians come up, and Peter's acting contrary to the gospel, and the gospel is you—you you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. You need to believe in Jesus Christ and be baptized and repent of your sins. That's how you're saved, and and so. <clears throat> You know, Paul. Paul is for, for, for Paul. It's not just a matter of discipline, like circumcision or not. It's a matter of the gospel is on on the line, right? And the same kind of thing I think is here uh, on the line too with the with the proposal to bless civil unions. The gospel's on the line. Of course it uh, is. Yeah, uh, marriage is between one man and one woman that God has joined. Let no man separate. Jesus said that's the way it was from the beginning. A number of theologians get real subtle and they say, "Well, Jesus never condemned homosexuality." Um, not true. Uh, uh, Jesus reaffirmed the law, and the law itself condemns homosexuality, uh, uh, homosexual acts, uh, that is, uh, in the Pentateuch, which Jesus refers to by way of summary, you know. But then Paul elaborates on that. Uh, exactly. In 1 Corinthians 6, he elaborates uh, quite a bit on, he, he actually mentions both active and passive sodomy. And he says, both will exclude you from the kingdom of heaven, along with being a drunkard or a, a murderer. Okay, there's all sorts of things that will exclude you. So this is the gospel on the right. line. Can right. we bless a, a hitman for the mafia? He's a murderer. Paul said murder will exclude you from the kingdom. Let's bless him qua murder, as a murderer. Let us, let, may God bless your work in murdering people. Okay, may God bless your relationship that is homosexual and uh, and. Uh, uh, sexual in nature, absolutely. That's that's perverse. It's perverse. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. And so so okay. So let's let's uh, bring out the pastoral side, though. Right. What we're saying is, look, this has nothing to do with a priest blessing a homosexual person. We're talking about Good. the union. Yes. The, the, yeah. The, the union between the two. That it, well, really, the disunion between the two. Right. This this recognizing some kind of actual union before God. That's what we're talking about, right? That's right. Uh, of course, a, a sinner can go for a blessing, of course. What you can't do is bless the sin, which is insane, right? We should all know that, right? We should all know that. Beautiful. No, that's beautiful. That's right. So what do you do when um, you're confronted with uh, bishops who are proposing something that, that that's wrong, you know? How do you deal with that? Or, well, well, here's what you do. Now, in this case, it's pretty patently obvious, at least I think it should be, though it isn't for everyone. But in other cases, it may not be quite as obvious. You might say, well, something seems wrong about this, such as uh, in, in the Synod on the Family 
and let's say Amoris Laetitia, there may be, it, it seems like, are they saying that it's okay if I'm divorced and remarried without an annulment and, and without forgiveness and repentance, I can just keep receiving communion, I can go to communion again? Um, it's not clear, right? Right, you're asking a question there, right? Yeah, yeah, that's more subtle. But here it's less subtle, but still, y- y- out of humility, uh, in deference to the magisterium, even if it's a local magisterium, like the German Bishops' Conference, you don't want to jump to conclusions right away and say, oh, they're heretical. Uh, although it, it, it is patently absurd to do this. You shouldn't, you're right, no way should you bless the uh, sin, but you should bless a sinner, absolutely. And so what happens, the, the procedure here, and this is usually for theologians to pursue, um, okay. who have issues, they, they are supposed to submit uh, a, a, a request for clarification. And for centuries now, uh, the form of that request is called a dubium, uh, which which means a doubt, but really it's a question, okay? So a dubium is f- uh, a, a, a request for clarification phrased in the form of a question. For example, there are, there are these, I don't know, four or five dubia, plural, that were submitted to Pope Francis after Morris. Could you please clarify this or this? And he hasn't done so yet. Uh, and so that's what this is for the German bishops' conference. There was a dubium submitted to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, uh, and it, it, it was very simple. Does the church have the power? It's beautifully and powerfully, frankly, worded. Does the church have the power to give the blessing to unions of persons of the same sex? And the response, negative. But then there's a beautiful explanatory note. So, okay, so, the and in this case, do you know who submitted the dubium? Do we know? They don't usually tell you who, but sometimes we can find out. You know, I don't know yet. Uh, maybe in a few weeks I'll find out who it was. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, also the other thing is uh, theologians usually are just not able to uh, willy-nilly submit a dubium and get it heard. You, you, you more often than not need a bishop to sponsor you uh, as you submit the dubium to either the Pope or to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, etc., um, you can submit dubia to other congregations too. The Congregation for Sacraments, or wait, Bishop okay. So I'm like so I'm confused. Does the du- the dubium doesn't go to the person himself first? You don't ask for a clarification from the actual person. Like if if I think you're saying something wrong, I don't go to you first. Well, you sh- you should, in, in according to the Matthew 18 principle, if you have something wrong with your brother, go to him first. So I, I'm not, I don't know if the if if the CDF like says, did you do that? I'll tell you what though. Um, the CDF, you could conceive of them doing that. If First of all, the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, is a very small office, and it's handling uh, the, the high-level appeals on questions of doctrine for a church that has, what, over 2 billion people? Right, yeah, right, right. So, so I bet they would be happy if you dealt with it on a local level first. Right, right. Uh, but I'm not sure if they say, you know, well, have you talked to the person first? But in charity and in, 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 in following Christ's directives in Matthew 18, you do. You should go to the person first and then see what they say about it. And then if that doesn't work, bring two or three others with you and say, yeah. hey, w- wait, this really seems to be a problem. Although I'll tell you what, um, even though this isn't an instance necessarily of the Matthew 18 principle in action, the uh, motion that I mentioned earlier namely to request that what the bishops, the synod of bishops in Germany do is always in line with church teaching, right? That could be, that's the kind of thing where you're saying, look, uh, <laughs> they're aware that there's some movements here in the synod that are in tension with, if not outright contradictory to revealed truth and faith, morals, discipline, and governance, you know? Well, I think, I think that the reason I brought that up is like, 
we have this idea, you know, and, and there is kind of like a Baltimore catechism generation that's like, I, there are people in the church, I'm not criticizing anyone in particular, but there are people in the church who are kind of like, just tell me what to believe, I don't need to know why to believe it. And that hasn't really worked for us, you know. Uh, so, so like, I think there is some fruit that comes from the back and forth a little bit, you know. Absolutely. Like, like Absolutely. I'd like to, I would like to know from these German bishops, are they, is it because of weakness, like they're caving? Is it because of bad theology? Is it because of ideology that they're trying to, I'd love to know, you know. I, and I think that would be a good conversation to have. Not that anything would make it okay, but I do want to understand them because I don't want this to happen again. Yeah, well, there is literature out there. A lot of it is in German, but not all of it. And you can dig into it. It's not pretty, necessarily. But there's a whole theological matrix that's been developed over the last couple of decades that deal with uh, what we call queer... Look, it's not what I call, but it's what the Academy calls queer theology. Queer. Okay? I'm not using that as a term of... No, uh, of course, yeah. Of d ...to demean anyone. But it's actually in the Academy, in Catholic th uh, theology. It's called queer theology. So it's it's a... Uh, in its extreme forms, it involves revisionism of the New Testament that Jesus was, uh, if, if uh, right, right. open open to homosexual, uh, romantic uh, uh, or sexual interaction, if not was gay himself. I mean, horribly blasphemous stuff like that. To to the more tame end of the spectrum, like um, you know, uh, well, Jesus didn't condemn it, or or you shouldn't you know, like Eve Tushnet. She will write about this uh, that you know. Being gay is a gift from God. You just aren't supposed to act on it sexually. So, so it's good that she's she says you know you shouldn't uh, have uh, sexual. You should be chaste. That's good. But then she'll say, but the actual orientation is a gift from God because you can offer something to the church. And this kind of language was was proposed for the Synod on the Family in 2015, as you may or may recall. Uh, and I think that people like Cardinal Seurat and others managed to get that language out of the final draft of the Synod. Um, because, you, you you know, yeah, well, <laughs> the catechism correctly says that the orientation is a disorder, even if you're not, a, it's not a sin, unless you act on it, the orientation to a sin is disordered. And so if I never murder, but I, I just really keep wanting to murder, I would say, you know, you'd go, oh gosh, Lord, save me from these desires. This is disordered. I shouldn't be wanting to murder, you know. Um, right. So, and, yeah. and by the way, those those extremes that you mentioned, uh, ranging from that Jesus was a homosexual to you know the the lesser like of the Eve Tushnet, we have all of those in America. All of yeah. those are manifesting all the time in America. You know, you you look at some of the w more watchdog websites, you know, and you're going to see things that you're shocked by uh, retreats and you know things like that. So it's it's rough. We have to be able to respond to this clearly. And you know, uh, homosexual men who've converted um, uh, e uh, to Catholicism, or as Catholics, they have been liberated from um, uh, an active life of, of homosexuality, um, uh, often, uh, depending on where they are, but often run into very painful situations where they don't find air support from bishops or priests, yeah. or, or even, frankly, Rome as much, although this document's encouraging. Uh, the catechism's yeah. encouraging. Scripture is fully encouraging, but uh, but locally, you know, let's say you're in uh, California and you're in a weird diocese, and you know you're you're looked upon as a social pariah because you right. you want to promote chastity among uh, homosexually oriented people, and you're you're like the problem. You're the enemy. 
that's yeah. very painful. That's very oh yeah, painful. oh yeah. You can imagine. I mean, yeah, yeah, I, and yeah. In in which case, uh, we've totally lost our way completely. You know, the thing is about this document, we which we brought we brought this kind of concept up a lot in in the five four or five episodes that we've done is that. Once again, you know, just reminding people that the truth is the most pastoral thing, you know, and it's like there's this there's this kind of uh, tiptoeing around the idea of pastoral care for same sex attracted individuals. And I, I actually have a lot of experience of working with groups like Courage and things like that. And I, I just I'm so thankful for this document because it it was pastoral. It told people right that. The most pastoral thing is to get out of sin, right, uh, in our life, you know, and and I think that that is why I was just I was pleasantly surprised and relieved, really, at the 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 language of the document it was very strong, it was very clear and concise, and it was it was well done. Yeah, no doubt. Um, no, so this is good. That uh, we all need blessings, <laughs> but right? What we don't what we don't. In fact, you know, Dave. So much of this comes down to love, properly loving somebody. If you really genuinely, and, and love in the truth, because real love is realistic. It's about the truth, about reality. Uh, and if I really love somebody, I want the best for them. I want them to have a, a holy, happy, healthy life. I want to be with them forever in heaven. And, and if, I, if I bless, and, and that blessing involves an affirmation of something that's going to hurt them, my goodness gracious, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're not only... You're not even just turning a, a blind eye to something and tolerating it. You're actually promoting it. You're, you're kind of pushing them off the cliff. I mean, I can't imagine something more pastorally malicious, even though the sentiments certainly probably are, oh, I, wanna, I want you to know that I affirm you. And, and, and that's a, it's great to want to comfort people and affirm them, but not in things that will hurt them. For crying out loud. And so that's what it comes down to is love. Love is what it comes down to. Not dogma, not pharisaical, blah, 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 blah. It comes down, do I love my brother or not? To say things that may destroy our friendship, that may cancel me and cancel culture, but I still say it because I love you. I don't want you to get hurt. Please watch out. There's a cliff here. Don't keep walking in that direction. Exactly. And by the way, before we get all, you know, get, uh, you know, stones start throwing at us at our house and things like that. uh, If a couple were to present themselves to the church and say to themselves, look, we're going to get married and we want the blessing of the church, but we're going to go ahead and contracept our whole lives. We would just as vehemently be against this, right? Absolutely. Because we don't want their lives ruined by sin. You know, we would be just as vehemently against this. It has nothing to do... It has very little to do with with, with the, gay. who it is, right? A- absolutely. Yeah, right. It's not about gay, really. It really isn't. Look, um, the church still has this tradition in place where she doesn't bless divorced and remarried, second marriages, third marriages, uh, unless uh, the first marriage wasn't even a marriage, and there's an annulment, and they're married in the church, then you get a blessing. But But if that hasn't happened, they withhold a blessing there, so why give the blessing in a homosexual union, which can't ever be a marriage, but not give it in a heterosexual union, which might be a marriage, but isn't yet. So, you know, it, it isn't about gay. None of this is about gay. No, no, it's, it's not. And, it, and it's sad that... It's about loving it's, people. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to continually be put in those terms, that, it right. is, that it's just discrimination. Right. But, you know, it, like what Mike was saying, and the difference is the couple, there is a possibility, possibility, not for sure, that they could have a valid marriage but it's not it's not always the case i mean there are times when um uh, annulments are rejected 
Absolutely. Still, even even these days. Yep. Right. And and a priest is not going to say, well, you know, you tried hard to get that annulment. We rejected it. So we're just going to bless your marriage. Ridiculous. We, we, we would Dave, also be vehemently saying that. Yeah. That's not pastoral. That's not pastoral. It's not, it's not loving. It's not loving. How would dare you deny? Well, I pat, well Mike, somebody. you don't you don't realize I pat him on the back when I say that. I, I really I, I give him a big hug. That's what you you're know? forgetting. But but what you know yeah but like what you know right right but what I'm getting at is you know the objector will be oh that's so unloving you're so hateful that you would deny them a blessing but you know what you know what it's not hateful this is why I'm not gonna let's talk about divorce and remarriage with no annulment I'm not gonna bless the union I'll bless you as a person absolutely I will you know if I'm a priest you absolutely should bless a gay man amen bless gay men bless gay women do it. Absolutely. I say that unironically and with no mental reservation or restraint. Bless divorced and remarried people, same thing. But do not bless the, the, the new union between divorced and remarried people. Why? It has everything to do with love. That's the perversion here. Is they're like, oh, it's so hateful and unloving that you won't bless them. No, no, no. It's hateful if you do bless them. I'll tell you why. If you bless the, excuse me, not the person, but the action, the, the sin you're talking, like you said, Dave, so correctly. Because the act of divorce, of actively, not being passively abandoned in divorce, but actively abandoning. Now, I'm not talking about separation because of abuse, okay? But actively rejecting the value made to your spouse and any children who are involved too, you're committed to them, and you walk away, that's a very profound, grave sin. It goes right to the core of the identity of the people you're abandoning. Uh, you don't love them enough right. or whatever. Or, you know, And it may be hard or impossible to love them, but not without grace. With grace, you can do it. Not with grace. With grace, you can do it. But so we can't bless that. We can't bless that act of divorce and remarriage, but we can bless the people. And, and unfortunately, the natural sciences have gone in the opposite direction, but it's not just it's not just about salvation. It's also therapeutic, right? When you when you leave a husband, if you're a husband or wife and you leave, you're leaving yourself behind, right? You're you're splitting yourself, like you're hurting yourself, wounding yourself deeply. Same thing with um, people who experience the the deep wounds of same sex attraction, and and I I have hundreds of friends um, who struggle with this, and I I I, de I definitely understand that it's it's more of a cross to bear than what many of us realize, but it it, it would be so horrific for me to push them into something that is wounding them further, and so yeah, I have no I have no qualms about saying. It's it's more pastoral to say no, <laughs> and then there's a yes too. They do need blessing. They need a blessing in as a person. They need they need like the rest of us sinners. We're sinners just like them. We need grace from Christ to to uh, be transformed. Um, so you know, one thing I often at moments like this, uh, you know, issues like this will come up in class or in discussions. I think, you know, in the end though, what can I and or should I be doing about this? Uh, and it's easy, at least for me. I'm not. Sure, I don't think I'm alone in this. To to get caught up in this and then forget that my main, my first job, is to is ongoing repentance of my sins because I'm a sinner. So to, to not use the occasion of this to to look at somebody else's uh, uh, else's sin or a si sinful situation, and then uh, conveniently and subtly, you know, uh, lose sight of my own. So I need to to 
to ongoing, every day, repent, uh, to receive Christ's forgiveness and transformation, uh, to grow in, 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 in holiness, and the victory that, that He gives us by the cross of all of the sins in, in our lives, okay? And then pray for the people involved here. And if you're a theologian, you would do. You would submit a dubium or something, or you'd call, you know, I, I, I'm not in touch with, with Bishop Marx, so I can't call him and say, hey, what are you doing? You know, but, but somebody is, and they should do that, you know, and maybe they have done that, and, and then submit a dubium, and uh, thank God, thank God it worked out the way it did this time. I mean, do you have any insights into, um, like, the inner workings? Do you, I mean, do you think that those, when this letter came out, that there was a previous discussion with Bishop Marx? Or Cardinal? Cardinal Marx. Yeah, Cardinal Marx. And, and uh, I'm not sure if he's the one who sponsored it. But... Like, like, do you think when someone submits a dubium that the CDF is like, well, let me just call him right now and see, <laughs> see, what, he's, and see what he was thinking when he it's said pro- this? The, the mileage probably varies in every single case. You know? Yeah, right, right. Because I think I'd like that job. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, well, it might seem nice from the outside, but at a certain point, you know, it, yeah. it can be it can be like like raking through the muck, you know. But right. but 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 um, no, I don't know. Uh, and I do know this: there's no template or boilerplate that everybody fits into. But in general, though, there have there has been uh, a process of subsidiarity, despite the fact that we don't quite have a synodal model the way the early church did. Uh, when there's been doctrinal problems, let's say in the United States, Charles Curran, Elizabeth Johnson, Sister Elizabeth Johnson, Father Roger Haight, uh, it started off on a local level and it moved, uh, escalated to the USCCB. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if any of these all went all the way to Rome. I think they were handled on the local level. So, Curran, but they Curran. could have gone to Rome. Oh, okay. I, th- I for some reason I thought there was an official document about there might have been Father Curran I mean, from Rome, but I might be wrong. What, what Curran, you know, Curran was fired from Catholic University of America in nineteen eighty-seven, eighty-eight, maybe eighty-nine, and then he sued the university, and they went to court, and Cardinal uh, Hickey, the late Cardinal Hickey, was the chancellor of CUA at the time, and the CUA, Catholic University of America, CUA, won the case um, because. Uh, Father Kern was found to have breached his contract, which was to teach Catholic moral theology, and he admittedly dis- disagreed with it. So he was teaching against it, and a secular court found in favor of the university. And I think that's where it ended. And then, and then in the church, he was just not permitted to teach at a Catholic university. So he's teaching at Southern Methodist down in your neck of you know. The well, he was. He he passed was, away okay. a few few years Did ago. He- Oh my yeah, gosh, he passed I didn't away. That. Okay. Yeah, you know, I've I've never I don't think I've ever told you this story, but when I when I was at Franciscan, uh, I went home for Christmas and they were doing forty days for life in Dallas, and um, they needed someone to be at in front of the abortion clinic on Christmas Eve from ten p.m. until six a.m. on Christmas morning, and they asked, you know, you're young, would you would you do that? And I said, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'd love to do that, you know, to be out there praying, right? And they said some some religious sisters might join you to sing Christmas carols out by the clinic, you know. So I thought this is going to be a weird, funny kind of situation. Well, the funniest thing happened: these religious sisters showed up, and we sang Christmas carols together. And there was a guy in their car who just stayed in the car. And I said to the sisters, "Where were you at a Christmas party before that?" And they said, "No, we had Christmas Eve mass at Father Curran's house." And I said, oh Father Curran, I was like, I was like, Father Curran, you mean like Father Curran, the, the, the guy from Catholic University? And they said, yes, he teaches at SMU. They said, oh he's gosh. a great friend of ours. And I said, you're saying Father Curran said mass for you tonight? And she said, yes, in his home. And I, and, and, and I said, 
you know, I've heard about Father Curran a million times in my classes. And she said, well, do you want to meet him? He's in the car over there. And I got to oh meet him. Oh, my goodness. It was the strangest thing. Yeah, That's all right. Hilarious. And I was just oh, thinking, like, Christmas Eve in front of an abortion clinic with these nuns singing Christmas carols and Father Curran in the car next That's to me. It was the strangest thing. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's surreal. Yeah, oh my yeah it was. It was. Listen, it was. for the record, just to set the record straight, I, I'm pretty positive Curran is still alive. Uh, oh, I thought it, I could we can sworn. verify we can verify that. Um, I just sent you some links in the chat so you can see uh, links to okay. Yeah, you know, but but I might be wrong. But either way, pray for him. <laughs> okay, I had um, the, the reason why I said that is because I know the Catholic Center at SMU received what I thought was a huge inheritance from him. Oh wow, wow. So wow. I th- I thought, but maybe it was just a gift. Maybe it wasn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. So there's there, there, this is a tough time in the church. Uh, this is a time where. Uh, the forces of uh, of the Antichrist and, and Christ, not that the Antichrist is in the world, I don't know, I'm not saying that, but just the forces of the kingdom of, of heaven and the kingdom of the enemy are really clashing. And that clash, it gets very painful when that clashes within the church herself, uh, between bishops and bishops and faithful and faithful, you know, uh, very difficult. So we've got a lot to pray for. Certainly, if he, if the Antichrist isn't in the world, there are many Antichrists in the world. That's right. And so, yeah, that's that's a, a this is just another example of the the insanity that we're trying yeah. to no, uh, right. trying to correct and, and talk about. So, I hope that this was fruitful for you. Uh, again, this is a victory, right? That document to me was Amen. a sign Thank of God. hope and a, and a great thing. And uh, I'm glad it happened. I'm glad it came out. And I'm I'm particularly thankful that it was publicized so well because um, it seemed to be. I mean, it seemed like I looked at the dates and I was reading it like two days later after it had been released. So that's, I mean, I think that's a, a good victory for us. And uh, and yeah, absolutely. And let's hope and pray that, that Cardinal Ladaria uh, keeps his job. <laughs> He's yeah. the prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, and he is a Jesuit. Right. And it, well, he said, you know, he did say, like, I don't know if what, you, what uh, news outlets you use, but it was very clear that Francis had read the document, that, you good. know, that... That the Pope had, you know, not signed off on it, but had, you know, it came from Petrine office, basically, you know, which, yes. you know, is, is, is not something we should be wondering about. No, that's about, right. At the end of the document, yeah. it says the, that Francis, at the audience granted to the undersigned secretary, was informed and gave his assent to the publication of the above-mentioned responsum. Uh, so he consented to its publication, yeah. Awesome. This has been another episode of Theology and Insanity. Thanks so much for listening, and please uh, tune in next week, and we'll have another topic for you. God bless. God bless.